So we continue our uh, series on God's big picture, uh, tracing the storyline of the Bible. Again, if, if you haven't been here, I'm kind of basing this series on a book by that title, God's Big Picture, uh, written by Vaughn Roberts. There are probably a few copies back there on the table still left if you'd like to pick one up. Excellent book. Uh, but we've been tracing the theme of the kingdom of God throughout the Bible, uh, eight phases of the kingdom of God, and um, we have defined the kingdom of God as God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, and enjoying his blessing. And uh, so we've seen the pattern of that kingdom in Genesis 1 and 2 established, where Adam and Eve were God's people in God's place, the Garden of Eden, and they were under the rule of God's word and enjoying the blessing of being God's community on God's mission together with him. And then we saw in Genesis 3 and the after effects throughout uh, all the way through Genesis 11 that the kingdom perished, that they did not submit to God's word, they disobeyed him, and so uh, he banished them from his place. They were no longer his people in his place. Uh, they were no longer submitting to his word, but in disobedience to it. And so rather than enjoying his blessing, they were under his curse. And then we saw after that in the promise given to Abraham that God was not abandoning his plan to have a people of his own possession who would uh, rule and reign with him uh, in the earth, in the universe. So he promised Abraham that he would establish uh, a people through him, uh, and the place would start in what we know as the promised land, but ultimately would expand to the entire universe. Um, and they would be under the rule of God's word um, and enjoy the blessing of being both blessed by God and being a blessing to the nations. And then, last week, we got to this particular section in the story that we're calling the partial kingdom, where now that promise given to Abraham is being unfolded slowly uh, through the big chunk of the Old Testament. So from Genesis, the second half of Genesis, all the way through Second uh, Chronicles, um, that's a big piece of the Bible. So last week we looked at, uh, so we're taking this partial kingdom uh, piece and we're dividing it into three weeks because it covers so much of the scriptures. And um, last week we looked at uh, how God began to redeem and rescue his people uh, using Moses and the Exodus and the Passover, that God wants to be with his people and wants them to be with him. Today we're going to focus on uh, what it means for those people to be under God's rule and enjoying the blessing of his presence. Then next week, we'll look at God's place and God's king as we talk about um, David in particularly and the covenant God made with King David. So, thank you for bearing with me. We're about halfway through. Uh, and then after, after next week, we're going to talk about all of the prophets in one Sunday Huh? We can do this. And then we'll move into the New Testament and spend just three Sundays on the New Testament before Thanksgiving comes. And then you'll have something really to be thankful for, won't you? 
that, that it's over. So, uh, thanks for your patience. Uh, we're trying to get us all on the same page on this very, very high view of the entire story of the Bible, so that then, uh, next year, after Christmas, when we take a book and look at it, we can say, now where does this book fit in the overarching story? Um, and it looks like we'll be, uh, after Christmas, we'll be looking at uh, the book of First Peter together. I'm really excited about that. So, that's where we are, um, trying to get you uh, situated. Let's pray and, and jump in here. Oh, Father, um, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the reminder last week that you love us, that you uh, moved heaven and earth to call us to be your people, um, that as Abraham's descendants by faith, we are the people of God. We are um, a, a royal nation, a, a holy royal priesthood um, as your people. Thank you for wanting to be with us and making that possible through Jesus. This morning, we uh, need your help to understand this piece. How, how does the law fit into uh, this story and into our lives? And I you know, I have to admit to you, Father, this is way bigger than, than I can help unpack in a few minutes. So would you, would you just help give us some of the essence um, and, uh, and then help fill in places I miss as we study on our own and as we continue to study as a congregation in the years to come. Uh, we are absolutely dependent on you to understand what it means to live under your rule and enjoy the blessing of your presence with us. Would you help us do that today, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I wonder if you have ever failed at anything. You ever failed? Um... I have numerous examples I could give you from, from my life, and um, I'll give you a couple just to prime the pump of our hearts thinking a little bit about um, failure and how we respond to it. Um, from something as simple as, you know, I mentioned that there's a lot of folks in this church who have a gift with a hammer and a saw and a drill. Um, I am not one of those people. Uh, over the years, in our 27 years of marriage, when I have been asked by my wife to hang a picture, hang a shelf on a wall, hang blinds in the windows, um, I have failed numerous, multiple times. Um, so much so, and, and it bothered me so much so that I have cried because I couldn't hang a stupid shelf on the wall. I have yelled and said things that ought not to come from anyone's mouth because of window blinds. So, that, okay, that's a silly, simple, but that's failure. I mean, I can't do it. Um, another uh, 
more potent example. I'll never forget when I was in college. It was my sophomore year, and for whatever reason, I had been elected to be the president of the drama club. And at the beginning of the year, uh, they had a meeting with all the new parents and new students at the school. And each of the clubs was supposed to send someone to represent that club and tell them a little bit about it. And so I, in my arrogance and whatever else, uh, stood in front of these parents and new students um, and was smacking on a piece of gum and just stood there and you know, just thought, hey, I'm an actor. I could get my way through this. I wasn't prepared. The mistake I made is that I told them I wasn't. I said, hey, it looks like I'm not prepared for this announcement. I'm not, but hey, here's what we're doing at the drama club. You want to come check it out, blah, 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 ha, 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 funny guy. As I left, I walked, it's a room kind of like this. As I walked out the middle aisle to go out, um, actually my parents were there that weekend, and I was going to go spend some time with them. I walked out, and the president of the college was sitting about right here. I don't know if I noticed that while I was standing up there, but as I was walking out, he reached up and grabbed my arm and pulled me down, and he whispered in my ear, I want you to know that I'm very disappointed in you. You should be prepared for things like this. The reason I remember that 30 years later so well is because I was crushed. And then I went out and looked at my mom and dad. Thankfully, they weren't in the room when all that happened, and they didn't hear what he said. Although, mom listens to these sermons, so. Um, I was crushed. I avoided that man like the plague. And it was a, you know, it was a small school. I saw him in the hallway every day. Um, I, I was just ashamed because I had... I had failed. He had good reason to be disappointed in me. Um, it, was, it must have been very obvious that I was ashamed because eventually he actually called me to his office and he said, look, I can tell you've been avoiding me. <laughs> and he said, I, I just want to... So he, he made it right. I mean, he, he said, yeah, let's learn from this. But I love you. We're okay. Um, but let's learn from this. Um, another instance of failure that is particularly poignant for me is um, that uh, I attempted to plan a church back 12 years ago or so. Um, convinced uh, the church that I was serving at that time to send us out to plant a church in a suburb, suburb of Knoxville, and convinced them to give us money to do that, and uh, it didn't make it. And it was clear that it wasn't going to make it probably not more than a year after we were started. Um, and there was nothing I could do to, to fix it. We were not going to make it financially. It wasn't going to grow fast enough for it to happen. There are all kinds of reasons now, looking back on it, why... I failed to do this or that or, or take this approach or, or whatever. 
Um, that was hard. That was hard because it was a dream of mine. And it was something I, it was a good thing to do. Failed. Um, and, and not just failed, but used money that could have been used for something else um, to do something that didn't work. I'll tell you, I'll tell you those stories because I wonder uh, what yours are. Um, I, you know, I've failed as a parent. Um, I've failed as a friend. I've failed as a husband. And you, you all have too. What do you do with those stories of your failure? Why, why does it matter? Why do we hate failing? Why do we avoid failure? Why, why are there some men who uh, stay at work and work more and more and more because they don't know what to do with the people in their house? Because they're afraid they're going to fail at the relationships God has given them. And so I'm just going to stick to something I know I'm good at. Um, why do we not risk doing certain things or having or involving ourselves in certain uh, relationships or projects? Why are, we, why are we playing it safe? Because we don't want to fail. And then what are all the ways that we numb the ache of failure um, or, or numb the fear of failure? As I thought about that this week, I've, I've thought, what is it that I really want? It's not that I just I don't want to fail. I don't, but why? And part of what I've, I've thought this week is, what I really want is to do something good. And to do something good that others would say is good. I, I want... I want a good thing that I do to get the stamp of approval, whether it's from people or from God. I don't want to hear I'm disappointed in you. I want to hear, well done. But more than just doing something good, I want to be good. I I just want to be good because... It's, it's very easy for someone to love you and accept you for what you're able to do. Moms understand this. You get a Mother's Day card and it says, thanks for all you do for us. Well, maybe what you'd like to hear is, just thank you for being you. Thank you for being Good. Or whatever it is, someone who's in ministry who someone says, I really appreciate your gifts. And what you really want to hear is, I appreciate you. So I think in some way we're all like this. We want to do something good, but really we just want to, we want to be good. I'm blessed to have a father who has said to me verbally, and he's a quiet guy, so to get this from him is a gift. 
to say, I'm proud of you, son. I'm proud of who you are. I'm proud of what you've done, but I'm proud of who you are. But not all of us get that. Many of us get, I'm disappointed. And I think we fear that failure because, precisely because, we were made to make a difference. We were made to do good and be good. We were made to make an impact. We were made, as I've said several times over the last few weeks, we were made to do something special. And so, look again, look back at creation, look at the pattern. God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. He put them in the garden and he said, work it, keep it, cultivate it, guard it, do something special with the resources I've given you. And then, for example, Adam got to name all the animals. Think of the, think of the power that that entailed for him to do that. Not just mental, but he, like God, who speaks things into existence, Adam was given by God the right to speak an animal's name and that be that animal's name. We were made to make a difference. We were made to make an impact, to do something special, but then we lost that um, when Adam ate the fruit and God said, so from now on, you're still going to work, but it's going to be harder. There will be resistance to making an impact. Um, it will be hard to do what you were made to do. And I imagine maybe that's when failure became a common occurrence. Um, and then we saw in Genesis 11.4 a sinful pursuit of doing something special when the people who built the tower said, come, let us build for ourselves a city. Let us make a name for ourselves. So in, in dependence upon themselves and without depending on God, they were going to make an impact. And then we see it in the story too when he told Abram, uh, no, I have a plan for how you're going to make an impact. I am going to bless you so that you can turn and be a blessing to the nations. And so, all the story so far has shown us that God has rescued a people for himself so that he can be with them, so that he can be their God and they can be his people. Um, and so that he could live among them and they could reflect his character and his holiness. He says, be holy because I am holy. Um, so God wants his presence to dwell among them. And so in this part of the story, we're talking about his presence dwelling in the temple. But they also need to know how to live as his people according to his purpose. And so he gives them the law. And that's what we're going to focus on today. The reason failure is so powerful is because we were made for purpose. And so the law comes along and shows God's people 
the purpose for which they were made. At the bottom of your sermon notes on page 5 in your bulletin, I, I gave you this quote because I, I think it, it helps bridge the gap from God redeeming his people, his community, and now God giving his people their mission. Um, listen to what uh, these guys say. Uh, Almost immediately after he set his people free, God gave them his law. The order is significant. First the gospel, then the law. God's people were released from their bondage to Pharaoh in order to serve the true and living God. So they were saved from something to something. To serve the true and living God, not as captured slaves, but as liberated sons and daughters. The law that God gave them at the time of their emancipation was not a new form of bondage, which we tend to think of the law that way, therefore, but a freedom charter. It was just because God's people had been saved by grace that they were now free to live by the law of his covenant community. God did not set his people free so they could do whatever they wanted, but so that they could live for him. And this is one of the law's most important uses to teach people who have been redeemed how to live for the glory of their God. And so God has moved heaven and earth to redeem for himself a people. Now he wants to show them, this is what it looks like to live in a way that reflects who I am. If you want to be in community with me and on mission with me, here's what it looks like. And so we read the Ten Commandments this morning. Before I move into that, I just want to make sure you understand real quickly that uh, our confession, the Westminster Confession, helps us understand there's three types of the law that were given at this time. There's the moral law, which, you know, summed up in the Ten Commandments. Jesus summed them up in two commandments, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. That We're going to come back to that because that's what we're going to focus on today. There was the ceremonial law, so those were the laws for worship and sacrifice. Uh, those laws highlighted the holiness of God and how sinful people are able to enjoy the presence of God. He said, I will dwell among them. He wanted to live with his people. So in order to do that, for a holy God to live with sinful people, something had to be done to make that possible. That's the ceremonial law. But we know on this side of the cross that all of those laws, the ceremonial laws, the sacrificial those were all fulfilled in Jesus because he is the ultimate sacrifice. Um, so there was moral law, the ceremonial law, and then the civil law, were, because at that time, God's people were a nation state. It was the nation of Israel. They were a theocracy, which means a kingdom where God is the king. And so he gave them laws that would govern them as a nation state, as a people, as a nation. Um, we, of course, now, as God's people, the church, are not a nation state. And so those uh, don't apply, but they do give great general direction and guidance to any government who would want to look and learn from them. And then there are ways that the church learns from them, too. So we're not... This morning, I'm not focusing on ceremonial. That's been fulfilled by Jesus. The civil law is no longer applicable to us as God's people since we're not a nation state. I'm focusing on God's moral law uh, summarized in the Ten Commandments. 
uh, and summarized in the two commandments that Jesus gave. And so quickly, I, I know you've maybe heard of this, but look, Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the first four of the Ten Commandments. They're all about loving God. That vertical relationship with God, the horizontal relationship with one another, are the last six of the Ten Commandments. This is how you love your neighbor as yourself. Um, It is interesting, parents, that the Fifth Commandment is one that bridges the two. (laughs) Because as parents, we, we... use our home as a training ground to teach children, the next generation, how to love God and to love others. Um, So, if you remember, I said a couple of weeks ago that God made us for a you-first life where we look to God and to others and to all that God has made and we say, you first. We use ourselves to love and serve God, to love and serve people and to love and serve all he has made. Well, the law, the Ten Commandments, the two commandments, also illustrate that vertical life of loving God, saying to God, you first, and the horizontal life of loving others and saying, you first to other people. And you say, well, but the Ten Commandments don't talk anything about creation. Ah, it assumes that God has given you the stuff and the place in order to carry out loving God and loving people. So we are to live a cross-shaped life of loving God and loving others in the place he's put us using the resources he's given us. This is what, this is what God's moral law does for us and pictures for us. This is what it looks like to be on mission with God. Quickly, very quickly, uh, in your notes I have three things about God's law, and um, then we'll wrap it up and come to the table together. Um, We learn from these passages that God's law is a guardrail for sinners. You know what guardrails do. They kind of, they keep you out of the danger zone, right? They keep your car from going off, straying off into dangerous and off-limit areas. They, they protect you from going that direction. Um, the law was given to sinners, all of us, to help protect and keep us from going off the edge. Um, and uh, the problem with that is that they don't have the power to keep us ultimately, from going off the edge. (laughs) Because our hearts are so bent on being me-first oriented that we will crash through these guardrails and we will go headlong off into the cavern um, because the Bible says no one is righteous. No one seeks God. Everyone lives with a me-first heart. So the guidelines are there and they, they kind of help keep the world from spinning totally out of control. But guardrails uh, may be able to protect you, but they can't protect you from the curse that the sin in your heart ultimately um, deserves. 
You learn, we learn that in the story when we look at the book of Judges where God has now given the people their land and is asking them, now I want you to live according to my law and the land that I've given you. And how is the whole book of Judges summarized? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Great. God gave them the guardrails, and they still did what was right in their own eyes. Um, they didn't, they, they crashed through the guardrails. So um, the law can direct and protect in a sense, but it can't provide the power you need to stay on the road, nor can it deliver you from the part of you that wants to run off the road. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. The law can make that clear to you that you are prone to wander, but it can't keep you ultimately from wandering. Secondly, God's law is a guardian for sinners. Um, it's, it's a guardian in, in two senses. One, it's a mirror that reflects the perfection of God's character and the imperfection of ours. But then, after it shows us the mirror, it comes along as a guardian and says, now, uh, I've, I've shown you what the problem is. Now let me lead you to the solution. And so that's why we have uh, Paul saying in, in what we read from Galatians 3 today, um, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So the law of God can act as a, a guardian to lead sinners to Jesus, but the law itself cannot justify them. It can only lead them to the one who justifies, who makes them right. And so, that's why Paul in Galatians 4 said that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. Jesus is the solution that the law is pushing us toward. But what about for people who have looked to Jesus for uh, deliverance from the curse of the law and for uh, to Jesus as the one who has obeyed the law perfectly in their place. What about saints? What about believers? Is the, do we not need the law anymore? You'll hear that from some folks. But actually, no, God's law is a guide for those who are in Christ. It's a guide in two ways. It's a, it's a personal guide, like a, a person who leads you and points out things along the journey and shows you the path, shows you the way. That's why in Psalm 1 we have uh, the psalmist saying, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers. Don't, don't follow those guides, but delight in the law of the Lord. Meditate on the law day and night. Let it be your personal guide. Not, not these guides, but this guide. That's why in Psalm 119, the psalmist says, lead me in the path of your commandments. The commandments of God show us uh, the path to walk. Um, but it's not only a personal guide, it is a written guide, uh, as in what to do and what not to do, where to go and where not to go. 
And so Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It, it shows me where to go. Now, oftentimes that lamp only shows you a few feet in front of you, but it shows you where to go. Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. I have stored up in your word, uh, your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. So there's this written guide that shows us this is what it looks like to live as a follower of Jesus. This is what it looks like to love God and love others. Um, so God's law is a guide for us, but still, still, even though the law is a guide for God's people and shows them the way they were made and meant to live, it still can't give them power to obey. That's why Paul said in Galatians 3, we read it this morning, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the law, the law doesn't have life in it to give you to live. It only can show you. So what we need is something else. We need something else to give us life so that we can live the way the law points us to live. And God knew that. And so he made his presence known through the temple. He knew that in order for us to live as his community on his mission of loving him and loving people with all that he has given us in the place he's put us, that we were going to need um, a provision we were going to need these sacrifices. Um, and so, um, as Hebrews says, all of those sacrificial laws, all of the sacrifices were all pointing forward to the good things to come. Um, because Jesus is the sacrifice and the priest. He is the one who makes it possible for us to escape the curse for our disobeying the law, and also to fulfill the law that we were meant to live. Jesus did it in our place. And now, the law-keeping Lamb of God lives inside us by His Spirit. And that makes us able to begin to walk the path of loving God and loving others in the place He's put us with all the resources He's given us as He empowers us. And in two weeks, we're going to look, when we look at the prophets, we're going to talk about Ezekiel, where Ezekiel said, uh, God promises people, I will put my spirit in you and I will cause you to obey my rules and my statutes. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to love me and to love others. Because that's the missing piece. That's why we call this the partial kingdom. It's... It's showing us as God's people uh, how we were made to live, but how it's impossible to live apart from the one who is coming to be our provision, Jesus. So back to failure. One of my favorite stories about Jesus is at his baptism, and then when he transfigured on the mountain um, shortly before his crucifixion. Uh, and 
in those two places, God the Father had these words to say about his son. He said about Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I think at the essence of my struggle with not wanting to fail is I want to hear those words. I want to hear my father say, I want to hear my creator say, I want to hear my king say, you're my beloved son, and I'm well pleased with you. Well done, good and faithful servant. And because Jesus, the son, came, the one who owns those words from his father, because he came and made it possible for me to become a son, for you to become a son or a daughter of his father through his sacrifice, those words belong to us. Even in our failures, whether it's a failure to hang a shelf, or whether it's a failure in your relationships, or something bigger and worse, we can know that we were made for the purpose of loving God and loving others, and that even when we fail as we pursue those purposes, we could hear our Father say, because of Jesus, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, I'm well pleased with you. I used to come to communion to the Lord's Supper and, and in some sense dread it because it's like, okay, it's time to beat myself up again. Um, yes, this, Jesus died for my sins, and so it, it seemed like communion was just a time that became for me a hammering, hammering, hammering. It was all about confessing my sin, which it should not be less than that. <laughs> but this one time, I was wrestling with that as I was waiting for the elements to be passed. and I wasn't serving, I was just in the congregation. And as I was thinking about that and starting to rehearse the, the beatings on myself, um, I had this memory of the night before where I had gone into the bedroom, uh, the nursery where our little toddler twins were sleeping in their cribs. And I remember walking in there quietly, they're sound asleep. I remember just going and standing over each one of them and looking at them and just, just great joy. I love these, I love these little guys. And really, at that point, there was nothing they could do to please me, except stop messing up diapers, maybe. That wasn't going to happen. Um, and I just looked at them, and I smiled, and I was like, wow, I love these guys. I delight in them. And so, for whatever reason, as we're taking communion, that memory came into my head from the night before, and it was as if the Lord said, and I don't I'm not saying audible voices, but it was as if he said, that's, that's me with you. That's what communion is about. No, you don't deserve this, but you're my son, and I delight in you. You think you delight in those little babies? Oh, my son, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's what this meal is about. Come and remember. And so, Father, we, we do Thank you for this sweet reminder 
of what it took for you to make us sons and daughters in whom you could delight and be, a, and be pleased, even when we do continue to fail. You can look at us because of Jesus and say, you're my beloved son, my beloved daughter, in you I am well pleased. And so thank you for this meal. Let, let this be that kind of moment for us now as we commune with the one who longs to commune with us and has made us to serve with him, with you, on your mission. Um, please set aside this bread and this cup from their normal everyday use and let them be for us again a sign and a seal of your great love for us through Christ Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen.